Genesis 13. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that they had, and Lot with him into the Negeb. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negeb as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can also be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Thanks, Lois. Good morning, everybody. Great to see you. No internet and social media. Are we going to survive? Will we even be here next week? No internet? How are we supposed to live? Yeah, par party like, yeah, it was the 90s. Exactly, yeah. All right. It's great to see you. My name is Matt, uh, the lead pastor at Central. Every once in a while, they let me, they banish me to promontory, essentially. And so this is my penance before the Lord. No, it's not true. It's my, this is awesome. Like, I slept in longer, hung out with the kids. It was great. And it's really, really cool to see what God continues to do among us here. It's really fun. You know, it's interesting in my, in my role as the lead pastor of Central and all the things that have been going on, um, we just had our AGM a couple weeks ago, and I, I mentioned there that it was my fifth year as the lead pastor uh, presenting at our annual general meeting, which just seems crazy to me in, until I look in the mirror and see how much more gray hair is here because you all are so stressful for me. So <laughs> that's not true. It's a hereditary thing. But uh, it's, really, it's really fascinating to see what God's done in our church in the last five years. We were two campuses at the time. We're about to launch our fourth campus now on, on Easter, uh, at Easter in Lake Iraq, which is fascinating. And a lot of people from Central at our Agassiz campus and Chilliwack campus are making that their home. And we're seeing a new church planted in a community that literally has no other church. 
So like when we say sent on mission as a value, that's exactly what we mean. Like we want to leverage our lives for the cause of the gospel. Many of you had a hand in planting our promontory campus because you responded to such a call. So I just want to affirm you. I want to thank you. It's just all kind of coming back fresh to me as we launch yet another campus. Harrison, will, we also have the privilege of planting a campus there in the future, which literally has no other church. So these are fascinating things. But when I became the lead pastor, we had about 600 people who would meet at Central on a Sunday morning. Now we have over 1,100 people that meet at Central on a Sunday morning. We had averaging about 150 kids five years ago on a Sunday morning. We have around 300 kids, zero to 10-year-olds, every single Sunday. That's why Pastor Jonathan gets gets up here and is like, help with kids, would be so amazing because God has seen fit to give us the next generation to raise up and disciple if we would respond to the call. But my, my job really has, has shifted a lot. I have to constantly evaluate. I feel like I'm in one of those seasons right now where I'm evaluating just the, the, the iteration of our church in this life cycle and trying to, to figure out, okay, what are the priorities of my role? And I, I'm sure you can relate to that. You have to reevaluate. Time goes on. Circumstances change. What are the priorities for me in my job? Or what are, what are my priorities? If you're looking to buy a house, what are your priorities in that? You know, what's the neighborhood you're looking for? What's the price range that it should be in? What's the lifestyle that you're after? And all of those things. What's it going to do to your bank account? And how much freedom will you still have? So all of those are the priorities in searching out a new house. Same with getting a car. What's the gas mileage going to be like? And all that kind of stuff? What's the warranty situation? If you're looking to marry someone, get a spouse, you have priorities about what that person uh, ought to have, what ought, ought to be about them. Um, those priorities that must exist for, for you two to be a match. And on and on we could go. Well, this morning is really a case study in priorities. We're going to see that in the text. There are two uh, main characters. There's Abraham, this man whose story of faith we are tracing in our series right now called As Numerous as the Stars. We're jumping into Genesis chapters 12 through 22, looking in at Abraham's life um, and looking in at God's faithfulness as well. And then he's got this, this, this nephew, this tag-along, really, named Lot. I don't know why he's there, but he is. He went for the journey as well. So Lot is there as well. And in Genesis chapter 13, as we just heard read, there's the, this scenario where really Lot has a set of priorities and Abraham has a set of priorities. And we see how that begins to work itself out. Really, if you follow the story, Abraham's choice will lead him to blessing and multiplication, Lot's choice, you don't, we, don't, we only see the beginnings of it in this text, but there are some flags in the text. We see that Lot's choices, Lot's priorities are actually going to lead him to destruction. Abraham's are going to lead him to blessing and multiplication. Lot's are going to lead him to destruction. Now, where last week the tension in the plot centered around the trial of famine, uh, this week the, the, the tension in the plot centers around the trial of prosperity. Now, as you hear me say the trial of prosperity, many of you are probably like, I'd give that trial a, you know, a try. Lord, if you want to give me such a trial, I am open to the trial of prosperity. Try me. But, it, but if you were to actually read, sit down this afternoon and read the entire Bible, give it a go. If you were to read the entire Bible today, you, you would quickly learn, actually, the greater trial probably is the priority route, not the famine route. Let, 
like, like some of the things that, that the scriptures say about wealth and the dangers, the temptations, it's, it's probably the murkier road. And so we're going to see in this text, really, the trial of prosperity pushing up against a couple men, Lot and Abraham, and we're going to see how they respond to such a trial. Now, we pick it up from last chapter where famine has led Abraham to take his family to Egypt, which has really been an absolute disaster, and his, he, he told his wife, hey, tell everyone you're my sister so they don't kill me and so it goes well for me. And she got scooped up into Pharaoh's harem of wives, essentially. And, and now, by God's grace and because of the promises of God, he is actually sending them out with greater wealth than they came into the land. That's just really uh, the hand of God's blessing on them. But, but picture with me the awkwardness of the journey back from Egypt to Canaan. Like, just like that so, sort of marriage couple interaction, right? Husbands, you ever, like, screwed up and, like, just kind of feel just the, the, the discomfort of sitting in that for a while? Just picture the Egypt to Canaan journey back after he's been like, tell them you're my sister so it goes well for me. Very awkward. I'm sure a lot of silence. But then they return to, to Canaan. And they, they, they enter the land again where they were meant to stay all along and to trust God all along. And that's where we pick up the story. So let's trace what Lot does with this scenario that comes their way, where essentially they get back to the land and Abraham looks at Lot because there's some tension among them. There's the Canaanites and the Perizzites, and, and then there's all of Abraham's flocks and herds and all of Lot's flocks and herds, and there's so much wealth there that the land can't actually handle all of it. And so Abraham says to Lot, hey, l listen, if you go left, I'll go right. If you go right, I'll go left. Have your pick of the land and, and I'll adjust. Just because there's lots of land out there, let's each find our spots. You choose and I'll react. So Lot is given that opportunity. So this is what Lot does. Lot made his choice according to one factor and one factor alone. As he looked out at the land, the Negev is like a hill region and so they could see kind of all kinds of... Uh, Israel out in front of them, future Israel. And he made his choice according to one factor. Which choice will make me the richest? Where does the most wealth lie for me? I can have any pick of the land. He made it according to one factor. What will make me the richest? Now, interestingly, Lot doesn't say, no, no, Abraham, listen, you shouldn't be offering the land to me. I should be offering the land. You should decide. I mean, you are the patriarch of the family. God came to you and made you a promise about the land. Don't offer me first dibs. You take first dibs, Abraham. He doesn't say that. He also doesn't seek God's counsel. There's no talk of, of, of Lot trying to discern whatsoever, which is really fascinating because he was a part of the family going down to Egypt and how colossally, what a disaster that was. He was a part of that. He saw that Abraham didn't pursue God and, it, and what a disaster it turned into. And yet they come right back into the land. He's given a choice and he doesn't seek God. He just goes at her and says, oh, that looks like it'll make me wealthy. I choose that. He looks at the land and chooses the land that looks best. Now, as the text was read for us, there were a number of warnings in the text. Here's one in verse 12. It says that Abraham, Abram settled in the land of Canaan while Lot 
settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. So what we're seeing here is that Lot chose the Jordan Valley, which was renowned uh, as being fertile land, but he also chose to set up his tent right on the cusp of Sodom, which was notorious for its moral corruption. This starts the beginning of Lot's downward path. We'll, we'll continue to trace it in future weeks, but here's what's getting started right now. He looked towards Sodom. That's the start of his downward path. He pitched his tent just outside Sodom. In, in Genesis 14, we're going to see that Lot is now living in Sodom. And by the time we get to Genesis 19, we're going to see that he's sitting at the gate, which is where sort of the, the city leaders would sit. So he is an influencer in the city by Genesis 19. See, God, listen, God sometimes calls us to live in Sodom, right? That's why we have a Chilliwack campus, right? So, like, all right. I usually pick on Agassiz, and I thought, you know, I'm not going to do it. And the reality is, right, like, there's no place without sin. Some people are called to live in cities that we could, we could say, you know, oh, does Las Vegas deserve ministry? Does it deserve missionaries? Of course it does. So, so is there ever a context by which followers of Jesus might go to essentially dwell in Sodom? Yeah, there are. There certainly are. There's no place without sin, and we have to live somewhere. But Lot isn't prioritizing the mission of God. He's prioritizing material possessions. The riches of the Jordan Valley above God. He's going to the place not to be a light. He's going to the place because he's drawn in by those lusts. I think we do the same. Oftentimes, when we're, there's the prospect of, of, you know, what career we're going to take, we're often in the circumstances of Lot. And we simply look out and say, that'll pay a lot. Money's good over there. There's no communing with God. There's no asking the older and the wiser among us, how can I follow Jesus well? What, what would be calling? Can you help me discern? But it's simply looking out at what will make me rich? What will give me the lifestyle that I would like? And we chase it. No thought to God or the mission of God and the kingdom of God. This goes even further sometimes when, when look, a lot of our families have, have two incomes in terms of kind of husband and wife both working full-time in the home. A lot of times that, that's a necessity. A lot of times that's calling. A lot of times that's like, man, I've, this is where God has placed us. Don't hear me knock that. But a lot of times without any discernment, without any sense of call, there's just sort of a, yeah, but the lifestyle we want to attain is here and it will require us both to work all the time. And, and so it's at the cost of the spiritual vitality of the family. No, 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 but it, if we both work full-time, then we can get the nicer house. And then we can have the cars that have leather interiors and, and are new. And, and, and then we can go on the trips that are further and warmer. Like, no, no, we're not going to, like, think about this or ask God. We're just going to do it because that's the lifestyle by which we want to attain. That is the lot priority. That's exactly what Lot's doing here. He's looking out, seeing what will make him rich, not giving a moment's thought to what God might have him do, and he's pursuing it like that with all of the ramifications that come with it. 
Now, I, I, I notice, and I, I, I'm the parent of a, of a couple wild boys, and I recognize this and the tensions in this in myself, but, but I look out and I see many, many parents who appear more concerned with what school what post-secondary school their kids are going to go to, what jobs they're going to get. I, I often see parents spending more time worried about those things than the eternity of their children's souls. So the reality is that a lot of our kids are in sports, mine included. Here, can I just let you in on something? None of our kids are turning pro. Very few of our kids are going to be doctors or CEOs. Every one of our kids will spend their eternity in either heaven or hell. Won't they? See, there, what good is it if you and your children become leading men and women in Sodom but lose your souls? You know what I mean? What good is it? Now, there are many legitimate factors in every one of the decisions I've talked about. The jobs we get and the two incomes and the house and the car and the trip. Like, there's many legitimate factors in all the decisions we make every single day. But shouldn't the kingdom and mission of God be the weightiest of them all? There are many legitimate factors in the decisions we make. Shouldn't the kingdom of God be the weightiest one? Amen. Amen. But what we see is that Lot prioritized Lot prioritized the riches he could see. It goes further. We see that Lot prioritized self-interests over generosity. Listen, Lot didn't think of God and the mission of God first. He thought of himself and what he could accumulate for himself first. Lot is thinking of one person here, and that is himself. In other words, Lot is the opposite of a generous heart. In verse 10, we see another flag, another warning shot. Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was like the garden of the Lord. In other words, the garden of Eden we see at the beginning of Genesis, the beginning of the Bible. See, I, I really think that Lot's working on a false premise here. That he thought he could attain heaven on earth. Paradise on earth all the satisfaction that he could ever want in material wealth. He thought, man, I can attain it. I can get everything my heart desires. Here's the problem. Sin originated in that garden. So we think that we can, man, I can get paradise on earth. The problem is, is that sin originated in that garden. It goes on. It gives us another warning. It says in verse 10, Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was like the land of Egypt. Now, we looked at this last week, and, and the reality is that in the Old Testament, going down to Egypt is frequently the alternative to trusting in God. When, when we see in the scriptures that they went down to Egypt, it, it's frequently seen as the alternative to trusting in God. And it says that he lifted up his eyes in the Jordan Valley, and it was like the land of Egypt. I don't even need to trust God. Look at, the, look at what the wealth this land will produce for me. I will be rich. There's no looking to God. There's looking to self. There's not trusting God. There's trusting in his plans. He trusted that peace and security and happiness and paradise, heaven on earth could be his as he looked out and saw, that's the spot. And I really do believe a lot of times we live the same way. Man, if I get that job, if I get that income, if we get these things, 
If my kids do this and do this and become that, we're good. It's so wrong. It's, it's so wrong. Now, an atheist is someone who believes that there's no God and so therefore naturally believe there's no afterlife. There's nothing after this life. That's just the, the simplistic explanation of what an atheist is. And so the way that that, that works itself out, it, in fact, Ricky Gervais just did a little mini-series called Afterlife um, where really he's an atheist making a case for why life has meaning and why we should continue on living. It's really fascinating. If you're wondering kind of an atheist view to life, Ricky Gervais uh, lives that to a T and tries to make a case for it. But the reality is, in, in the kind of atheistic view, that if this is all there is, then we should pursue personal pleasure above all. If this life is all there is, I need to live it to the full and I need to have pleasure, enjoyment at every turn. And, and, and I need to avoid at all costs suffering because it doesn't give me pleasure, right? That's, that, that's just how it works. Here's the, here's the problem. Many Christians live like practical atheists, live as if this is all there is. We look out, we see luxuries, we look out, we see wealth, and we pursue them as if at all costs, I must have these or my life will not have meaning. Because essentially, practically, because this is all there is. Essentially denying our view of eternity, but just living lives without eternal perspective, living lives full of self-interest. Lot is a cautionary tale for us in that regard. But there's another character in this story, in this case study of, priority, of priorities, and his name is Abraham. And what we see him do is we see Abraham prioritize the kingdom of God. I love how this chapter 13 starts because Abraham screwed up bad at the end of Genesis 12. Like he went down to Egypt. He didn't commune with God. He was a terrible husband. But he gets it. He, he, he realizes it. And he gets back to the land of Canaan. And what does he do? He retraces his steps and goes back to the place where he was last and where he worshiped God last. Now, this is really important for us in the Christian life. Anybody a screw up? Anybody a sinner? Welcome to the club. That's every single one of us. How do we live as Christians when that is the reality, when we fail, when we trip up hard? We can take a lesson from Abraham here. We need to just retrace our steps and go back to that first place that place when we built an altar, figuratively speaking, confessed our sin, repented of it, and replaced our trust in God. We don't need to live and walk in blame and shame, guilt, heavy burdens, but we do need to retrace our steps to that place where Jesus is our first love, where we get on our knees, we repent of our sin, and then we continue the journey of faith. That's exactly where Abraham starts. In Genesis 12, there was famine, there were no altars, there was no worship, there was fear, and there was doubting God. But what we see in Abraham in Genesis 13 is that he begins and ends with altars. He returns to the place of faith and worship. And that's exactly what we are to do when we fail. Abraham's living in this tension place of living between promise and fulfillment. What is required is faith when you live between promise and fulfillment. Abraham's been promised incredible things, but none of it has really come to pass. He doesn't have descendants yet. He hasn't really inherited the land in a possession kind of a way. He's living in a tent. He's camping. 
See, faith that God will take care of him and not abandon him is, is, is where Abraham is living between promise and fulfillment. That's where we live as well. That's our call as well, that in this time, everything's not right, everything's not as it should be, everything's not made new, but we do have the promises of God and the guarantee of those promises, the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. This is exactly what Ephesians 1 says. Like, how do we know that God's promises are true? How can we trust that his promises will be fulfilled? Well, Ephesians 1 tells us that in Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. In other words, when you are in hard things or wondering, God, where are you? And there's that presence of the Holy Spirit, that, 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 that knowledge that God is revealing himself in your life in a, in a difficult time. It's the guarantee. It's the seal. The promises will be fulfilled. You can trust him. Praise God for that, that seal, that guarantee. That's the way George Mueller lived. He prioritized the kingdom of God. George Mueller was a 19th century um, a director of the Ashley Down Orphanage in Bristol, in England, and was a was an evangelist as well. And over the course of his lifetime, Mueller cared for over 10,000 orphans in his life. He also established 117 schools which offered Christian education to over 120,000 children. Many of the students being orphans or in the very poor class in society. So much, so, and he... He gave them such a robust education that he was accused in society of bringing these impoverished children above their station in life. You're giving them too good an education. They're nobodies. That's the way George Mueller lived. He did this with over 10,000 orphan children. He did this with over 120,000 students in his schools. Here's the fascinating part. George Mueller was not wealthy. He was never wealthy. But God always provided enough for him and the children. See, see we, we, we read the Abraham story and a lot of us are like, that's great that Abraham had such faith, but that's Abraham. That's a biblical character. We always do this. We want to give ourselves an out to being faithful and to having faith. In George Mueller's time, George Mueller would always be like, trust God, he'll provide. And people would literally say to him, yeah, but you're a special case. You're George Mueller. And he got so frustrated by this that he actually wrote people in response and said, my dear Christian reader, will you not try this way? Will you not know for yourself the preciousness and the happiness of this way of casting all your cares and your burdens and necessities upon God? This way is as open to you as to me. Everyone is invited and commanded to trust in the Lord to trust in him with all his heart and to cast his burden upon him and to call upon him in the day of trouble. Will you not do this? My dear brethren in Christ, I long that you may do so. I desire that you may taste the sweetness of that state of heart in which while surrounded by difficulties and necessities, you can yet be at peace because you know that the living God, your Father in heaven, cares for you. George Mueller's reliance was on Jesus. 
He didn't find peace of mind by building up his own kingdom. He found it in building into God's kingdom and relying on God to daily meet his needs and the thousands under his care built up by his faith. As he trusted God in faith for provision, his faith and the faith of those around him was built up because God always came through as he trusted God. Not only did Abraham prioritize the kingdom of God, within that, Abraham prioritized generosity over self-interest. Look, if there's a tag-along in this story, who, who is it? It's Lot, right? It's Lot. And like I said already, Abraham's the uncle. Abraham's the recipient of the promised land. So who should get the pick of the land as they look out? Abraham should. But what does he do? He looks at his nephew and says, listen, you choose. If you go right, I'll go left. If you go left, I'll go right. You choose. Lot thought of himself first. Abraham actually thought of himself third. He returned to the land. He built an altar. He thought of God first. He looked over at his nephew Lot. He thought of Lot second. And then finally, he thought of himself last. Abraham had wealth, but his wealth didn't have him. You know what I mean? Lot had wealth and his, and his wealth had him. But Abraham had faith. He believed God. He trusted God. And he prioritized because of his trust in God. He could prioritize generosity over self-interest. There, there's a, a, one of the things I love about Central, our church at large, is that our, our church is really, God's done something fascinating in it, many things that are fascinating in it. But one of them is the number of families that have adopted children and who foster children. Tons of our families do that, which is inspiring. And as I talk to some of you about the way you live your lives, I sometimes find myself wondering, am I even a Christian? The way that you're living so generously, like I feel convicted by your life. It, it's amazing. We have so many people like that. Um, at our Chilliwack campus, there's a, a family who, uh, they've adopted a couple kids and they have a little foster baby right now. And in the foyer in the last few weeks, people are just ogling over this cute little baby. Last week, I was like tickling her little feet as she was sleeping and she's just so adorable, right? My boys are getting big, tall, and gangly and weird. Here's this little sweet little baby girl and everybody's just ogling over her. But as everyone's ogling over her, some of the comments are like this. I could never do what you're doing. And, and fair enough, yeah, that, that's, that's an incredible work that, that some of you do. But some of the comments have been like, I could never do that because my heart would break when I'd have to give the baby back, you know? I couldn't do it. And this young foster mom in our church looked back at, at somebody who made that comment and she said, that's exactly what my prayer is. That my heart would break. Because then I'll know I've loved them well. What are we here for? Self-interest? Building our kingdoms? Or looking out and saying, this is the kingdom of God. How do we see it propelled in the world? One sweet little baby at a time, one family at a time, one child at a time, one neighbor at a time. 
So I just want to conclude with, with really a diagnostic couple of questions. The, the, the overarching question as we do this case study in priorities, and we've seen Lot, we've seen Abraham. My, my primary question is, whose priorities better exemplify your approach to life? Lot's or Abraham's? Whose, priori whose priorities better exemplify your approach to life? Here's a couple diagnostic questions to help us answer that honestly. What's the first and weightiest in your decisions? Right, we see Lot standing on the hill looking out at all the land and he picks the primo land. What's his priority? Wealth for himself. What are the, what's, what's navigating your life? What's the first and weightiest in your decisions? Here's the truth. Here, here's really the, the Christian belief. Souls are valuable. The mission is urgent. And Jesus is glorious, full stop. That is meant to be the grand influence of our, of our entire lives. That everything trickle down from there. So we are to make wise choices with work, with school, with parenting, with where we live, with what we drive, in everything. And we will do that by bringing everything to Bethel. Bringing everything to the altar of the Lord in prayer, in seeking him. Lord, make me about your mission in the big decisions, in the little decisions. May your kingdom come in and through my life, Jesus. So I just want to invite you to consider the mission of Jesus as the weightiest priority of your lives. Okay, that's the first. Another diagnostic question. Does God get the first and best of all you receive? Like, whose priorities better exemplify your approach to life? Within that is Abraham being really open-handed with his stuff as he's closed-handed to the God he worships in faith. See, Abraham knew that he had been blessed to be a blessing, so he was able to hold tightly to God, loosely to his stuff, look over at Lot and say, have at her, take what you'd like. Does God get the first and best of all you receive? I heard the story of a pastor who was sitting with a couple and, and they weren't giving to the church at all. Now, when I say giving to the church, it's not so we can spend it frivolously. It, it, giving to the church is an act of worship, much like we're going to see Abraham do as he gives to Melchizedek, this priest who shows up in Genesis 14. We were chatting about this earlier in our, our preaching cohort, like this Melchizedek guy, this is crazy. Where'd he come from? And Abraham gives a tithe. He gives the first, the best. Sitting with, this pastor sitting with this couple, and they're not giving at all. They're not giving to the church, but really meaning they're not giving to God. And the pastor's like, hey, what would it look like? What, like give me, give me like a, a number. Like what, what would giving your first and best to God look like? And, and the couple chatted, and they kind of came up with like, well, giving this amount would feel, like right off the bat when we get her, giving this amount would, would feel like our first and best to God. And the pastor said, okay, listen, why don't we try this? What would you think of this? You write a check for that amount right now. You hand it to me. I'll put it in my desk drawer. And at the end of the month, we'll touch base. And if, if you feel like we can't cash that, cash that check, if God has not provided it enough, if it's going to bounce, then I'll rip it up and I'll give it back. Sound good? And they looked at each other and they talked a little bit. And they're like, yeah, we think we can do that. And the pastor looked back at them and said, shame on you. You trust me more than you trust God. You trust a little plan of mine over the plans of God. Shame on you. 
does God get your first and your best? Is he the priority of your life? John Piper, in his fascinating book, Desiring God, wrote, God has made us to be conduits of his grace. And what he means by that is like, here's the blessings of God, and they've been kind of given to us, entrusted to us, and we are mere conduits of that blessing to bless other people. So we are merely the tube, the channel, from God's blessing poured out on us. We are the tube by which that blessing flows to the world. So we are conduits. And he wrote, God has made us to be conduits of his grace. The danger is in thinking the conduit should be lined with gold. It shouldn't. Copper will do. I want to invite you you to give the first, your first and your best to God. He cares for the lilies. He cares for the birds. He cares for you. Jesus said in Matthew 6, but the f- seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. The, all these things are everything else that you need. Give your first and your best. Seek the kingdom. Prioritize the kingdom and God will meet you in the rest. He will provide for you. He will do it. How do we go from prioritizing the riches we can see to prioritizing the kingdom of God? How do we go from self-interest to selflessness? How is that possible? I, I really believe that's the gospel working itself in and through our lives. This resurrection power that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in us. It takes root in our lives and it becomes the fruit of the Holy Spirit working in and through us. It's the fruit of gospel implications that if we have Jesus, we recognize we have enough. This is exactly what Abraham was learning And at the very end of our text in Genesis 13, God gives him this amazing promise. He's standing on this hill, looking out at at really land that God is saying will be his. And he says, look north, look south, look east, look west. All of it will be yours. He goes on to say, look at the dust on the ground. That's going to be like your descendants, like really hard to number. Later, he's going to say, your descendants will be as numerous as the stars. Do you hear what the promises are for Abraham? Here's what they are. He's going to be able to look out at any time and look anywhere and be reminded of the promises of God. He's going to be able to look down in the dust and be reminded of the promises of God. He's going to be able to look up to the heavens and be reminded of the promises of God. And in doing that, he can trust him that God will meet him as he pours his life out for the world in being a blessing. Those promises are ours as well. So Abraham is able to hold things of earth loosely. Abraham was freed up to be a blessing so that he could be generous to those around him. And the same is so true for us. So I just want to invite you this morning, overarchingly, prioritize the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Jesus, I I just want to... Uh, remind myself of that very thing because, Lord, my, my gaze is constantly interrupted by, um, from you to things of this world that, that are really tantalizing, that draw me in, that, um, yeah, Lord, I, it, it's not easy to live in Sodom. But, Lord, I pray that you would help us be a, a missional people in it. Jesus, I ask that you would help us really, really practically prioritize the kingdom in every decision, the big, the small. We would prioritize the kingdom. 
leverage all you've entrusted to us for the mission of God. Lord, I just pray that you'd really practically do that work in us a little deeper, a little more. Free us, Lord, a little more of the idols, the things that catch our attention and take our gaze from you. Oh, Lord, may we be freed up to be your people on mission. In Jesus' name, amen.